Good morning, church. Fall is here and the weather is wonderful. It's just refreshing to go outside. It's always good to be with you here at Lamar Avenue. And uh, I'm looking forward to having more people sit up front where real Christians do. And uh, that's a joke for those in the back, okay? Don't understand my humor. You can still go to heaven from the back row. You just won't see me because I'll be on the front. That's the way that works. But we're grateful for your presence today. Hey, today is Fifth Sunday Fellowship Meal. We're having the Heaven's Food Fried Chicken, okay? That's, that's the, I'm a southern boy, so that's what we're having is fried chicken. And today it's a little different. Uh, anybody been in the military? Who's been in the military in here? Didn't you love those long lines waiting in the military? Oh, they're terrible. I'm convinced that the reason we don't have more people at fellowship, especially those that serve in the military, they're tired of long lines, and they're not going to do that anymore. Well, today there's no long line. Today we're eating family style. The food's already going to be at the tables. All you do is pay your $350 for a piece of chicken. If you don't have that, then see Jimmy Faulkner. Uh, he'll be glad to pay. Or uh, Keith Bowman, they'll take care of you. But it's $5 a person. If you don't have it, don't worry about it. Just put something in and go on. And uh, you just pay. Food and drinks are at tables. But the, I mean, uh, dessert and uh, drinks are at tables. You'll see that. Just find you a table. The food is like you're serving family style. I mean, it's right there in the middle of the table. You don't have to wait in line. You go through, and we'll have a little bit, about 10 or 12-minute little sharing time on something that uh, I'll facilitate, and we'll have a good time visiting at lunch. So hope you enjoy the lunch. If you weren't planning on going to lunch today and, and having fried chicken, repent and be baptized and do it anyway, all right? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, I know that what I say matters. Not because it's my story, but it's your story. And I know, Father, that I represent a lot of people in saying I want to be like Jesus more than ever in my life. And I know my own shortcomings, and all of us do. And there's times, Father, that following you is not easy. Even when we know what your word says, sometimes it's just difficult. We are fleshly people. We have old habits. We have old attitudes. And some days we're excited and are just grateful to be following you. And other days we are just challenged to the very core of our being to do what you ask us to do with others. Thank you for your grace. It filters through our lives and in this church. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you have a bulletin with you, there's an insert in the bulletin. And, we're, and of two weeks ago, we began a new series called Good News. Good News. It's Mark's story. Notice what's capitalized on the screen. Well, it's not capitalized. Good News, Mark's gospel for, underline the word for, the church. So let's do, do a little bit of review. I'll go quickly. On uh, A couple of weeks ago, on October 15th, we introduced this, that that more than a history of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark, it's more than just a history. It's more than just a historical account of Jesus' life and death, burial, and resurrection. That Mark shapes his story for the church. 
The Gospels are written to the church for the church. So the church knows how to follow Jesus. The very first people that read the Gospels were the church. The Gospel of Mark. And here's what we talked about to introduce it. Before there was a New Testament, there were merely stories and events that were told, and they were eventually written down. So the Gospels become selected stories from the life of Christ. You have comments about many more events happened that are not recorded in this book, the Gospel of John says. The, that should give you a clue that there's many more stories that weren't written down. What's written down was carefully chosen for followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of what gospel it is. They're selected. The first people to hear the story of Mark as a, as a story that's told, that's written down in particular, were, was the church. The gospels are not just like, here's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now the New Testament church starts, and we move on from there. no. The church needed to understand and hear about the life and ministry and teachings of Christ so they knew how to live it, so they knew how to follow. So the Gospels are written to the church. We talked about at the time they were living under Roman imperial power, Roman imperial values, ways of treating people, class systems, ways of uh, understanding what it meant to be human from a imperial standpoint mark is the earliest of the gospels not matthew matthew and luke are writing are following mark's gospel to write their story to their audiences so this begins to change the way we understand the gospels it begins to make the gospel center for what our reading is and what it means to be church so we talked about a couple of weeks ago that it, peter's peter is the one that's shaping the story the story reflects Peter's telling, Peter's incidents, Peter's events. And so Peter, Mark's writing down Peter's telling of the story to a large extent. And it's a radical manifesto of discipleship in light of Roman imperial power. In other words, how do you be Christian in a secular culture? Now that's where we come in. There is increasing evidence more and more and more that our own country is moving to a secular orientation. That we are moving more and more into pagan realities. That truth is relative. It's called post-truth, post-Christian. So this makes the Gospel of Mark very relevant to us as Christians. Now, Land of the free, home of the brave, great, grateful to be American. I've traveled around the world. I am kiss the ground when I hit, fly into New York or Los Angeles or wherever I enter the, the country, Houston. I am grateful to be an American. But the assumptions of what it meant to be American and be Christian are different today. Would you agree with that? They're different. And we're deeply concerned about our country, but... What we're called to be is we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be disciples in a secular culture, and it's a great, great opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity. So we talked about that. Only Mark records this two phrases that gives you an indication that Peter is the main person telling the story. When he says in chapter 16 in the resurrection narrative, and you have the man dressed in white, they come to the empty tomb, and the disciples go, hey, where are they laid? Where are they put my Lord? Where are they put my Lord? He's not here. He is risen. And then the first, let me get this situated here. 
The first thing he says is, go tell the disciples, and what's the next two words? And Peter. And Peter. Why? Because Peter's the one that when the cock crowed, he denied. Peter's the one that tried to walk on water and lost sight of the Lord and almost drowned. Peter's the one that said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And didn't. Peter's the one that understood his own failures. Peter's understood his own heart. Peter's understood. So Peter, when Jesus dies, Peter's world is over, gone, through. All he feels is the guilt and the shame of what happened in denying Christ, even though Christ told him that would what would happen. So what Mark records is the man at the tomb, the person dressed in white at the tomb says, he's risen. You go tell the disciples and Peter. I'm sorry I'm having trouble with this headset here. So, you go tell the disciples and Peter. And then we talked about how discipleship is the theme of Mark and how Mark arranges his gospel, and it does three primary ways. The structure of Mark, who in the world is Jesus, his identity, he is Lord over death. He is Lord over disease. He is Lord over disaster. He's Lord over demons. That's the first part of Mark answering the question, who is this Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Christ. He is anointed one of God, consistent with the prophecies of Matthew. So who is Jesus? He is Christ. And he is Lord over all these things that happen in our lives that we encounter. Second question. Mark moves in and he does it with the theme of blindness. The two blind man stories. You remember this if you were here two weeks ago? The two blind man stories. The first story. The first story is the man that had to be touched twice to, be, to see clearly. That's not about the power of Jesus at all. That's about a spiritual lesson. That's about saying, look, do you see Jesus clearly? So it's the theme of blindness. It's the theme of blindness that comes in, and not only blindness, but hard hearts. That covers the central section of Mark, which is the intense discipleship section that goes all the way through to chapter 10, 46 through 52, on the story of Bar blind Bartimaeus that receives his sight, and he goes on the way. We talked about the way being that Greek word hadas, which is not just road that some versions translate it. It's this way to the cross, so chapter 11 opens up with headed toward Jerusalem. Now, that's the structure of Mark. We went over that two weeks ago, so what about now? Is Lamar Avenue a people of good news? Are you a people that embrace the story of the gospel in growing and maturing as disciples of Christ, seeing Jesus clearly, imitating, modeling what it means to follow Jesus? So however Jesus did his ministry, that's what it means to live the good news. The blind, the broken, the hurting, that's who Jesus did. Does Lamar Avenue deal with people who who need to see Jesus more clearly? Do they deal with the blind, the broken, the hurting, the, the despised, the marginalized, the people? It doesn't matter where you've come from. You can come in this church and be loved and accepted. You can find a place of healing. You can find grace here. People are going to love you where you are. They're not going to judge you. They're going to take you where you are. Is that Lamar Avenue Church of Christ? On what extent? If one says not at all and ten says absolutely, where are you on that scale? Well, I'm about a 5.5. Well, that's a good church answer. Stay in the middle on everything, okay? But here's the question. Are you going to live by faith 
are you going to live by fear? You know what I mean? You got to be honest. Because some religion is totally based on fear. Keep the rules. If you step out of line, you're in trouble. Always be serious. Never have anything that, that opens up your spirit. Or no confession, no openness, no vulnerability, none of this. We've got to be serious. We've got to hold up the image. We've got to be the right kind of people. I know that's driving you crazy. It's driving me crazy. But here's the reality. I don't know when it was in my life, but I realized I was living a religion of fear based in fear. Does that make sense? It was a fear that I was always going to do something wrong. It was a fear that I could never be right. It was a fear that I always had to have a sense of guilt in order to be Christian. It was a fear that, that there were some shame things in my life. And I always lived with this, for a long time, this sense of fear and this sense of shame. Now, I covered it up with humor, and I covered it up being positive. I covered it up with being, trying to be a decent athlete, and I covered it up with being tough, and I covered it up with a lot of ways. But the reality is, underneath the surface, in the dark night of the soul, I was driven by the need for acceptance rooted in fear. And a lot of guilt and shame. I don't know when it was in my life that I said, wait, this is inconsistent with the God who loves me and the Jesus I'm claiming to follow. I don't know when it was. I don't know if I was 18, 19, 20, 21. I don't know if it's when I had to confront my, my own father and some of his stuff and the way we, we were raised. I don't know when it was in my life, but all I know is somewhere I said, I'm going to live by faith and not be dominated by fear in my life. Now, I'm not talking about godly fear. Fear God, keep his commandments. I'm not talking about fear as respect. I can talk about fear that the word phobos comes from, that we get phobia from, that just, that just cultivates so much anxiety in us that we can't relax with God. You say, you can't relax with God. God's a holy God. Listen, follow Jesus. Do you have room in your life for a laughing Christ? Let me just say that real slow. Do you have room in your life for a laughing Christ? If you don't, your view of Christ is not full enough because if he was tempted in all ways such as we are yet without sin, Hebrews says, and he had to be made like his brothers in every way so he could identify with us. If he was tempted and had to be made like us and he's fully human, did Jesus ever laugh? I'd love for there to have been a passage, especially for the person who says, show me in the Bible. Well, do a little bit of simple reasoning, folks. He's fully human. Several years ago, I went to uh, Israel on a trip. I think I told you this. I'm, I've told this story before, but some of you are only here like every other week, so you, you probably missed it, all right? Well, at least the ones that aren't filling these pews, Okay. But, but the reality is this, I, I go, my roommate was Jimmy Adcox from the Southwest Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas, been there 40, just finished 40 years at one church, great guy, and I said, Jimmy, let's read all about Jesus in the Sea of Galilee, because we're at the Sea of Galilee, I want to get up early in the morning and put on my good Church of Christ shorts, okay, and, and put on my sandals and my tank top before the sun rises, and I want to go down the Sea of Galilee, you know, I want to go there, and I want to put my feet in the Sea of Galilee, it's middle of June, I want to experience that, and he said, all right, so we, before we went to sleep that night, we read everything we could in the Gospels that happened at Sea of Galilee, had a prayer, went to sleep. 
I woke up, it was before daylight, way before daylight. I got dressed, and I said, Jimmy, you going with me? He said, I'll, I'll be down there a little bit. So I ended up walking down by myself for a little bit, put my feet in the Sea of Galilee. And I had on the holy shorts. And I'm just thinking about all the things that happened. And I began to weep. That all this story and all this stuff I'd heard about all my life, all the miracles, all the walking on the water, all the healings, all the stuff that he did, I'm there. I'm there. Big old, big old tears just running down my cheeks. And then I heard it. I heard some people laughing and water splashing about half a football field, about 50 yards. I look up. The sun's barely coming up. These guys are having a water fight in the Sea of Galilee in a little fishing boat just like you think Jesus would have been in with the sail. They're going out to fish, and they're laughing. They're laughing, and they're splashing water, and it dawned on me, I did not have room for a Jesus that would have had a water fight in the Sea of Galilee. Do you? Well, the Bible, see, this is trouble. We get so consumed by finding a text that we miss the humanity of Jesus. We miss his humanity, his full, complete humanity. And I began to cry more. And I began to think, I don't have room for a laughing Christ. Years later, I'm speaking in Denton, Texas at the Singing Oaks Church for a Christmas dinner. It's an after-dinner speech, not really a sermon. I'm talking about this. And there's this real brusque man with his arms crossed. And he's sitting there with this beautiful, white-headed woman who had crippling arthritis. And her little hands were drawn up like this. And he's got his arms crossed. And I thought, that's got to be his mama. And I'm talking about if I could believe in a Jesus like that when I was younger, with all my guilt, and all my fear, and all my shame, with all my fearful approach to religion, if I could have heard about a Jesus like that, it would have sure helped me as a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old. I would want to, I mean, that's amazing. And I'm describing that. I finished the little 15, 20-minute talk. As soon as it's over, here comes this guy. I'm thinking, oh man, he is going to whip me on Christmas Eve. He looks at me and he says, thank you. I was raised in the Church of Christ, left when I was 17. I'm 58 years old and I've never been back in the doors till tonight when my sweet mother asked me to come to this banquet and bring her. And I said, thanks, for what? He said, you know, I left as a mad teenager, didn't think I needed all this. I've been angry that my mother has to live like she lives, and she's a sweet, godly woman. I didn't expect for to be touched tonight. But you have restored my faith in Jesus Christ. Shook my hand, big old brusky man, hugged me, said, God bless you. About six months later, I get a picture in the mail rolled up in a tube from Atlanta, Georgia, underground Atlanta, store underground Atlanta, if you've ever been there. And I unrolled it. It's a picture of the laughing Christ. 
on the back of it says, thank you for restoring my faith, your friend. It hangs right above my desk. You see, do you have room for a Jesus that is fully human, that cries, that laughs, that gets angry, that's frustrated, that looks you in the eye and still loves you no matter what you've been through? Do you have room for that kind of Jesus in this church? Do you have room for a, a Jesus that's fully human? And so what you see is Jesus saying to a group of teachers of the law, I want you to understand you don't get it. You have missed it. So in Mark chapter 2, if you got the text, and I'll move through this very quickly for you. Chapter 1, when he returned, chapter 2, verse 1, when he returned to Capernaum after seven days, it was some days, it was reported that he was at home. He's at home in Capernaum. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the, at the front door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came. Now this is Peter's hometown, okay? Some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after they dug through it, they let down the mat, the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw, what does your Bible say? Their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, here is four men bringing a paralyzed person and in a Jewish culture it's a belief that the reason he's paralyzed is there's something wrong in his life. There's some kind of sin. Jesus deals with this with the blind man in John chapter 9. Who sinned? This man and his parents that was born blind. Neither. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That's how John deals with it. Paralyzed man, their faith, watch this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know what to do with all that, except now some of the scribes were sitting there. I like to see them cross their arms, you know how that is. They were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? They must have went, whoa, how did he know what we were thinking? What is going on here? Watch the text. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, stand up, take your mat, and walk, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority, see there's a key word authority, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And the scribes are still over here going, wait just a minute. Now, from chapter 2, 1 to chapter 3, verse 6, there are five conflict stories, and this is the first one. And there's five, four key questions, and then a statement that's made that summarizes these conflict stories and what the real issue is that these people don't get it about their religion even though they probably know a lot of the law what are they they're in your notes who can forgive sins but god alone said that why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners that's going to be a story at dinner at levi's house why do john's disciples fast and, and the disciples disciples of the pharisees fast your disciples don't fast He'll talk about old wine and new wineskins. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They watched him to see, here's the statement, 
They watched him to see if he would cure on the Sabbath. Those are five conflict stories and five quest four questions, one statement that summarize this, gives you a picture of why was there conflict? Because they missed it. And their whole religion was about make sure the I is dotted and the T is crossed and do it according to our viewpoint. And that's what it means to be religious. And Jesus says, I know what's going on with you. So this is one of the few times you see how clear this is about Jesus' emotion. In chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus looked around at them with, what did your Bible say? Anger. Let it sit. Why is he angry, Adam? Here's my translation. They don't get it. They don't get it. They're religious people. They know the law. They observe Sabbath. They, they do all these good things. And they have missed it. They have missed it. They don't understand that the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. That what God wants is God wants relationship. And God wants healing. And God, everything God does is for the sake of us to be in relationship with him and you have allowed your rules and your interpretations and your stuff and your church heritage and your viewpoint and your traditions to get in the way of the very people God came to deal with. It breaks your heart. But more than that, Jesus looked at them. Notice what the text says. He looked around at them. Straight in the eye. And he was angry. Verse 6 gives the commentary. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to, mine says destroy, yours probably says kill. Wait just a minute. How could good religious people end up that way? Because their whole system was threatened by the person, the teaching, the life of Jesus, and how he treated people. Who are the Herodians? They were a political group of Jews that really were tied to Herod to help influence Herod for the sake of the Jewish people, but they were modern-day sneaky politicians. Not that all politicians are sneaky, but we'll leave that alone. The Herodians were loyal to Herod, but they were Jewish, and they were incredibly political. So what the Jews did, let's go to those who can help us get Herod on our side, and let's find a way to eliminate this threat to the way we're doing religion. Whew, doesn't it make you shiver that people could act like that? People could be like that? So here's the principle. If you're going to do good news living, here it is. Good news living always involves the heart. Good news living always involves your heart. It always involves what's really driving you, what's going on on the inside of you, what you're willing to do. And sometimes you can't reason with people, can you? Because they're so angry and they're so stuck and they believe so much what they're doing is so right 
you can't reason with them even no matter how they treat people. Because good, if you're going to be a good news people, you've got to deal with what's going on in your heart. So ask the question, am I a person of faith or am I a person of fear? Is my approach to church and to life and to God, is it rooted in fear? Not healthy fear, unhealthy fear that creates phobias and anxiety in us and keeps us bound rather than open to God and trusting Him. The next story, He, he calls some disciples by the lake, verse 13. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, tax collector, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Then where does he go? You don't eat with tax collectors. You don't eat with people that work for the IRS. Now, if you work for the IRS, I'll eat with you. Come and eat chicken. I'll buy if you need me to. Well, Keith will or Jimmy, but anyway. But here's the reality. Where does Jesus go? He goes home with a tax collector. Here's the central question for that. Watch what they began to do. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to this to his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus goes home with him to help him be a follower of Christ and have a changed life. That's why he talks about old wine and new wineskins. You can't just add a little bit of Jesus to your old religious system and your traditions and be a very good follower of Jesus. You've got, you got to start with Jesus and take Jesus for what he says and who he is. So here's the central question. Who are you eating with? Literally. Who are you eating with? When I was in high school, I had a couple of rough friends. Small town, everybody knows everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody knows everybody. And we get to the equivalent of a Dairy Queen at the end of this street in the small town, and I'd eat lunch at school with this couple of friends of mine, and they were pretty rough characters. But they were friends. I liked them. They didn't go to church. They used bad language. They had a little problem with alcohol. But I liked them. Played football together. You know what I'm thinking? You know, I'd invite them to church, and they wouldn't. Ah, we don't do that, Grady. We don't do that. You know, we're not into that, you know. My mother gave me a lecture one night. Son, evil companions corrupt. Help me, church. Good morals. Mama, I love you. But I like these guys. I know, but if you keep hanging like them, you're going to be just like them. Mama, Here's the deal. Maybe I'm going to have influence on them. No, nope, doesn't work that way, son. You need to stay away from them. They don't have good, re you know, those boys and mention their last, one of their last names. You know, their daddy's not a good man. And they don't have a good reputation. They've been in jail more than they have not. I said, but, you know, Mama, I like them, and I'm going to keep eating with them. Well, you be careful. You know, she'd point her finger at how mamas do. Get in my face. And I got to thinking, that's sometimes what we've done in church. We're so worried about who we're with and who we're not with and who we're eating with 
We're so worried about insulating ourselves as Christians away from the world that we have no relationship with people to be able to even influence them at all. Does that make sense? We only hang with the people we like. We only hang with the people we're comfortable with. We only hang with the people we have the same, similar values with. I don't know where you work, but who do you eat with at lunch? Even if you take your lunch. I don't know where, where you go to school, but who are you eating with? See, Jesus went, called him, and said, I'm going to go home with you, and was criticized for who he ate with. So I think a practical question. Who are you eating with? Well, we sure want Lamar Avenue to grow. We sure want Lamar Avenue to reach out. How's it going to happen if you don't start eating with and you don't start fellowshipping with and you don't start being around the very people you're trying to eat instead of hanging out with church people all the time, every Sunday in every way? you got to reach out. you got to ask God for courage. Otherwise, you're going to be consumed by your fears and your assumptions about the people. Oh, they don't care about God. Look at the way they're living. Hmm. Ask those who are in prison who hear the word of God. Ask those who are, you can fill in the blank, I won't need to do that anymore. But here's the last principle that I want you to grab today. Good news religion. Good news religion always seeks to bless, not burden people. Good news religion always seeks to bless, not burden people. So is Lamar Avenue a church of good news? How many hoops do people have to jump through to be a part of you? How many hoops do people have to jump through to be invited to lunch? How many hoops do people have to jump through to be welcome in your home? How many hoops do people have to jump through? How, much, how hard is it to be involved here, to come and be here? How hard is it to get in this church? How hard is it to be received and welcomed and cared for and invited and loved on? I don't know. I'm not here enough. It's just the question. It's the gospel question. You see, eating with people, healing, brokenness, all that. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of the kind of people we are. So today the question is still, is Lamar Avenue a people of good news? If you are driven by fear, Jesus gets right in your face and says, come on, I love you. Don't live out of fear. Don't live out of fear. I love you. I'm for you. Follow me, and I'll show you what faith looks like. If you need to be baptized into Christ today to begin that walk, if you need to confess, if you need to share, if you just need prayers, if you need somebody to hug you, I'll find somebody that'll do that. Let's stand and sing.